Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, glad to have everybody out there with me today. Um, you know, the legislature, we're now down to uh, three days left in the session today. Tomorrow they adjourn on Friday, uh, day 40, uh, uh, which makes it, what, June 26th, a session that normally ends the first week of May around that time, or, or late April, course, it was delayed by the pandemic, and they have raced in the final 11 days to get as much of the important stuff done as they can, and we're going to spend time talking about that on the show today. Uh, and for that, very happy to be joined by Donna Lowry. Donna, of course, uh, the host of Lawmakers on GPB television, the single longest-running show in Georgia television. Donna, way too young. <laughs> to have even known about the show That's and right. first it's, went it's, on the air amazing. many, many years ago. <laughs> yeah, Hi, that's Donna. true. Hi there, Bill. I'm thrilled to be a part of this show today. I'm Lots glad to have you here, here, too. Greg Bluestein, yeah, Greg Bluestein, a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, has also been uh, down at the Capitol covering some of the news down there. But, Greg, you continue to cover uh, political campaigns and everything else you can get your hands on. You're sort of insatiable when it comes to finding political stories to cover. But thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, it's going to be interesting once the session ends because um, the, the campaign will really begin. It already has begun for some of these federal races, but it really begins for all these legislative races, too, because they haven't been able to raise money. They haven't been able to, you know, uh, uh, focus their attention on their own reelection campaign. So it'll be it'll be a big difference come Monday. Um, before I introduce our final panelist, I, I want to quickly say I, I sort of think of you two, Donna and Greg, and other journalists like you. You're kind of warriors in my mind. You're out there. I mean, look, I continue to shelter in place. As people know, I do this show from the uh, uh, shelter of the spare bedroom in our house outside of the city of Decatur, uh, and I continue to not go out into the world very much. Uh, and there is something daunting, I think, about the two of you, especially at the state capitol, uh, being able to go down there and work. And uh, all I can say is thank you both for, uh, for, for doing that. Uh, you're bringing us news that we need uh, at, some, at least some risk to yourself. Does it feel that way to either of you? No, I don't. I don't feel that I'm at risk at all. You know, we we signed up as journalists to cover the news, no matter what comes up, and so we do our best to protect ourselves. But I think our, our main goal is to make sure we are telling people what's taking place, and so whatever that takes. I mean, we've done interviews where the uh, some lawmakers wearing masks, some are not. Once we you know, I put a microphone in front of their face. They say, should I keep it on? Should I not? I give them the choice. And I, I, I've been keeping my mask on, of course. But the main thing is to make sure that we get the information that, that we need to pass along, you know. So so we, we do what we do. Right, Greg? Yeah. Yeah, we've got our masks on. We keep socially distanced, um, covering the Senate, especially yesterday in the gallery. I mean, people are, uh, are not remotely close to each other because we've got the, the press corps has the entire 
gallery to, to spread out. I don't, but look, we've covered protests, we've covered rallies, we've covered political events. I covered Kelly Leffler's first in-person event um, just a few days ago up in Gainesville since the pandemic. So, you know, we still have a job to do, but we have to be safe and careful when we do it. Well, well, uh, personally, I, from my point of view, thank you for being out there uh, reporting important news on our behalf. Karen Owen is with us. I'm really always glad to have Karen back on the show. She, of course, is a professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. Karen, you're getting set to go back out on the front lines, too. You're going to start classes, uh, I guess, in August. And uh, the university's system is trying to figure out ways to make uh, in-person classes as safe as possible. Uh, But it's daunting, isn't it? Yes, and we are with all plans to go back in August. I think West Georgia will start in August 12th, and we will see what it looks like. It will be a little bit different, but I think we all have to be careful and smart in how we get back out into the world. Uh, Karen, uh, in addition now to uh, being a professor of political science, uh, spent time working on the Hill when Nathan Deal was a member of the U.S. House up there, worked in in his office. So we always enjoy having your insights as part of the show. All right, uh, let's get going. Uh, Donna, last night, the, the legislature, I think, had a historic moment. Uh, tell yeah. us what they accomplished and why it matters. Well, it, it's actually, you know, as you mentioned, we've been coming down here for a while. I've certainly been coming down for more than 30 years. But I think yesterday, um, the Having the the Senate and the House both pass the hate crimes bill was a, an, an amazing day. The feeling down here was different from anything I had experienced before. Afterwards, with so many, you know, this bipartisan push to get a hate crimes bill through, and then having it happen, uh, the the votes uh, in the Senate only six people against it, and in the House, thirty eight people voted against it. The Senate went first. The, um, the words on the floor, the different speeches on the floor were bare, very impassioned. Some of them were emotional. There was talk of uh, people told, told their own personal stories. Uh, but then there were people who just wanted to let everybody else know that they were kind of late to the party in terms of understanding the, um, the problems with embedded discrimination, as Senator uh, uh, Kalzer put it, Bill Kalzer put it, uh, that we can't deny or run from some of the things that uh, have been happening in the state, and that this, certainly the video of Ahmaud Aubrey right here in Georgia made a difference in terms of the minds of everybody. So he pushed this bill. Um, the big stumbling block, of, as you know, was that last Friday uh, that the um, the, the Senate Judiciary Committee added, um, actually it was rules, I'm sorry, actually added that um, police and um, police would be a protected class, um, those who are first responders. That was taken out. There was a totally different bill for that. Uh, that helped a lot of people <clears throat> feel comfortable about the hate crimes bill. And so that bill passed first, then went over to the House and it passed. But in the uh, in the Senate, there was just uh, just this feeling of 
We've got to get this through. And they were able to do that. And then it went straight to the House. We didn't expect it to happen so quickly. Um, Turn around over in the House. Not a lot of discussion there. And then it passed over there. And then, of course, the uh, House Speaker, who had been talking, he'd actually been talking about the number of days that had elapsed since the House passed the the version back in um, last 470 days, I said, I think, um, back in the last year. And so the, the, the speaker was just elated, and there was a lot of feeling of, you know, unity, and we worked on this together, and this is what we have now, and Georgia's going to be better for it. I know you were there, Greg, so Greg, what's uh, your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was... It was Greg, a, it was very... Was, emo- yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the word history was thrown around a lot. And, and Bill, you're right. It was it was very emotional. I mean, I, I've been covering this since it was struck down. A, a previous statute was struck down in 2004 as unconstitutional by the state Supreme Court. Um, and it looked like, I mean, how many times have we written the story about the perennial battle for hate crimes legislation just going nowhere? And this was clearly a law that was set to go nowhere, a proposal that was set to go nowhere again this year. And it took, uh, as unfortunate as it was, it took Ahmaud Arbery's death. Um, to really spur it to traction right after Ahmaud Arbery's death. The, the, death, the House had already passed this last year, but it was bottled up at the Senate committee. And when we broke for the high, for coronavirus hiatus, there was no talk about even getting a hearing in the state Senate. Um, so that shows you how the demonstrations, how the protests, um, really how, how the, the, the national conversation over race and justice have really played a, a, a significant role in Georgia's legislative process. And Ahmaud Arbery's m- mother, um, shortly after it passed, said, I'm glad my son did not die in vain. Um, so very, very, um, very emotional, passionate speeches you heard. As Donna mentioned, um, in the state Senate, there was just a string of people speaking. Only one opponent that I can remember who spoke, Bill Heath, but everyone else was um, supportive. And a lot of them brought their own personal stories about their their own awakenings. Or in the case of State Senator Renee Unterman, who converted to Judaism um, a few decades ago, her own encounters with discrimination and anti-Semitism. So passionate speeches and something that we have not, we do not usually see on the on the floor of, the, of, of either chamber. Karen, I think it's maybe important. Greg mentioned that the state Supreme Court overturned the, the, the hate crimes law that was put in place back at the turn of the 2000s. I think they passed it in 2000, session of 2000 or 2001. It worked its way up mm-hmm. to the state Supreme Court. And lest people fear that this uh, measure, assume, assuming it's signed by the governor, and there's no reason to think he won't sign it, is also destined for a date with the courts. It's very different. The court ruled back in 2004 that the language in that hate crimes bill was too broad, too uh, uh, generalized, and therefore you couldn't, it, you couldn't distinguish uh, what a hate crime was and what, wh- who it protected. The court wanted enumerated classes, essentially, and this bill lays out very specifically who's covered in, in this measure. So I think that lawmakers now, knowing that a bill was overturned, you know, a law that was overturned, they're very careful when they go in to write something now because they have the knowledge that they need to be specific and lay out those classes so that if a legal challenge does emerge, they can defend it well and show why they have the intent behind what they've written and who they are definitely protecting. You know, I think, too, here it shows politically that our lawmakers are paying attention to the public and desires of people to see change. And I think this shows, you know, 
both Donna and Greg mentioned the unity, the bipartisan support. It also shows that our legislature, in a time of crunch right now, right, when the focus probably they thought was going to be on budget issues, they can actually govern. They can do something that can be effective and, and make a difference in people's lives. And I think that's kind of nice to see that we do have lawmakers stepping up to do that. Well, Karen, as long as you've got the ball, let me continue with you, and then I really want to hear uh, Greg and Donna on this subject as well. The fact that, as Donna pointed out, there was an effort in the Senate over the weekend to include police officers and first responders as part of the protected classes uh, suggests that there are members of the Senate who wanted to send a very different political message. Um, that, that they wanted to make it clear that their hearts lay with police who have to deal with protesters who are put in what they think of as vulnerable positions in, in a shooting situation where they may or may not have been justified in shooting. And, and so I'm, I'm setting all that up to say the fact that there was a significant proportion of the Senate that seemed to be willing to go along with that makes me wonder um, if, yes, they passed the bill, yes, it will probably become law, it's important symbolically, but it tells me that it isn't as if the hearts and minds of everyone in the state legislature have been won over by the need for this kind of justice. What, what do you think about that? And then I want to get everybody else in the mix. Well, I think that we can't divorce the idea that lawmakers, legislators, they have a vast group of constituents. And so they're not just talking to one group of people. They have to think about those in the district they're representing and how they're going to get reelected. And so sometimes that reelection piece can weigh heavily. And they think about, you know, they need to talk to a base that's going to turn out to vote for them. And so some of these senators in the state probably recognize that their voters are also supportive of law enforcement and wanted to see that support written into the bill. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's very smart that if you want to see good public policy made, sometimes you have to split those interests. And so first, the hate crimes bill needed to go through. And then, two, you can, re you can create another bill that maybe does speak and protect those in the first responder class and, and group, but you don't have to lump them together. So it doesn't become so political that it becomes more about the governance and protection of different people. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. I one of the the the, um, the Saturday session was a rare session, uh, and it was interesting that it came right off after the decision was made to add this protected class for first responders. And Senator David Lucas got on the got up in front of the the uh, chamber and just with tears in his eyes, passionately talked about the fact that it would. It did not make sense to add an occupation, especially police officers, into a hate crime bill when you had police officers who were considered a part of the problem. And so he was very, very passionate about that, said he would not support it. Uh, it looked like things were not going to happen with the hate crime bill, hate crimes bill with that. Um, but as I understand it, apparently through the rest of the weekend and through this week, there was a lot of negotiating going back and forth. Uh, early in the week, I, I heard from people such as uh, Dean Calvin Smyrie, who's been there for 
40-something years, and he said that they, it looked like they were going to be able to do something with that, that it would come out of the, the hate crimes bill. It did. And then it made sense, I guess, to in order to get those who were kind of really struggling with trying to go uh, to go with the hate crimes bill to have a separate bill that would focus on it. So I think there was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of talk about that yesterday, about both sides getting together, sometimes angry with each other, sometimes yelling. There was some reference to the fact that they they really did have some tough times. There were some apologies even yesterday on the floor to people they may have said some things to during this period of time. But in the end, they had come together to put something together that they all felt very proud of. Yeah, I mean, look, if you look at the leaders of the legislature, they had both raised the stakes so high on passing this. Um, Calvin Smyre, you just mentioned, said it would be a catastrophe if, if nothing, if no hate crimes law passed. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan had gone on national TV saying that, that he would, he, he basically promised that a hate crimes version of the bill would pass. Um, look, I want to focus on the number of the 31. And that's the number of new votes in the Georgia House that voted for the hate crimes bill yesterday, as opposed to um, last year. Na last year's 96, um, it, it barely passed. They need 91 votes to pass. 96 lawmakers uh, voted for the, the last year's version of the hate crimes bill. Yesterday, that number rose to 127. And if you look at those, at those new yes votes, um, they're not just from the suburbs, although su several of them are. They're from small town swing districts. They're from rural areas. They're from exurban areas. So Republicans around the state, um, there's still a lot of no votes, of course, but Republicans around the state um, had sort of their own reckoning and joined this. And one of them is Houston Gaines of Athens. He's in a very, very tight district. He, he competitive district. He voted no against it, um, uh, you know, last year and this year. He said he said he was uh, he was glad to get it across the finish line and that the addition of reporting requirements and changes to um, you know, stiffer penalties made the difference to them. So they found different reasons to do so. But um, it's interesting looking at those 31 lawmakers who, who changed their minds between this year and last year. You know, Karen, it's really fascinating. I ask you this as a political scientist. Uh, it's really fascinating sometimes how social movements uh, slow are s slow to take hold they're, they're, they kind of, you know, metaphorically drag their feet. They can't gain the kind of momentum that the people who are advocates for whatever the movement is are hoping for. And then suddenly, bam, something happens that accelerates it into the public consciousness in a whole new way. I would argue that the issue of gay marriage and, in fact, the whole acceptance by society of, of, gay, uh, uh, of gay people uh, was an example of that. Ba all of a sudden... It, uh, something that had been uh, considered uh, uh, outside of the norm became entirely acceptable. Um, it is interesting, that, by the way, and I'm going to make that same point about hate crimes, it is interesting that for years, one of the reasons the General Assembly refused to pass a new version of the hate crimes bill after the Supreme Court threw out the old one was that there were many members of the General Assembly who did not want to include protections for gays and lesbians. That's another significant aspect of this bill. This is the first piece of legislation that recognizes and embraces the LGBT community in Georgia and says they are deserving of protections. So two things there. I, I don't mean to talk so long, but number one, our acceptance of the LGBT community has grown in an, in, in an accelerated pace. And number two, 
as a result of Ahmaud Arbery, as a result of George Floyd, as a result of Rayshard Brooks, suddenly race consciousness has exploded on the scene and people are getting it in a whole new way. And the two kind of come together in the way that this bill went through the, this, the legislature. Well, you're absolutely right that legislators seem to sometimes be slow when they look at addressing some public policy problems or issues, and it does take a very significant point in time or action or an event that actually moves them to do that. I mean, we saw that in the civil rights movement, right, that it was national television that showed individuals getting harmed by police that pushed the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Act. So I think history shows that lawmakers do act when there's national attention on an issue crisis and then they'll move. And I think you're right. So with the hate crime bill here in Georgia, there was some hesitation because of uh, the language that included to the protections for those who are um, gay and, and classifying those to have that protection. I think last week we saw when the Supreme Court issued forth its uh, recognition to write about um, LB, the LGBTQ sorry, community that there was, again, the, okay, this is a group of individuals that we are identifying. We do want to make sure they're okay. And I think that allowed the General Assembly to move forward. I think they had all those pieces coming together that they had to act. They had to show that they could provide some protection in the state. It was no longer going to be a smart thing for them to ignore it and, and be slow in, to, in that action. But, but a lot of that, Greg, is because they recognize that their constituents and the people of this state had, had a sea change in their recognition of the need to protect, among others, African Americans from discrimination, bigotry, and racial crimes. So that's part of all of this enormous change we've suddenly gone through. And really, it, 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 as tragic as it is, it took the death of Ahmaud Arbery, it took the death of George Floyd, it took those graphic videos for people to, to see for it themselves. And, and for, Democrats have always been pushing for this. Democrats have been pushing for this since 2004. So Democrats, since it was struck down by the, by the state's highest court. Um, so Democrats have been, have been bringing this up. And, 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 of, and of late, suburban Republicans have made it their, their calling card, too. But it also – so what it meant is it took – conservative white Republican leaders like David Ralston, um, like like some of those people who switched the votes, those, some of those 31 who switched the votes, their votes, um, to step up and say, like like uh, Senator Bill Coustert of Athens did yesterday. Um, he, he gave him a 20-minute kind of opening where he acknowledged um, his own uh, uh, concerns and his own um, mindset that was troubled in the past and, and, and kind of checked his own privilege, I should say, um, and, and, and said that it's time for, for Georgia to pass it. So in a, in a way, those conservative white Republicans gave their colleagues some cover. Um, they weren't going to go out. A lot of these lawmakers weren't going to go out on the limb and, and join Democrats, if not for that forceful support from people like Bill Kausert or David Ralston. Yeah. And I, I I, I've got to get to a break. But... Okay. No, I, I was just going to say really quick, the other person who I thought was fascinating in his speech was uh, Senator Jesse Stone, whose committee held up mm -hmm. the um, uh, 426 for a whole year. And he said, because he said bluntly, it's because we just didn't have the votes. And he actually said bias motivated crimes incite retaliation. And he was very, very passionate about what he had to say on the floor. Um, one last question, and then we really do have to get to a break. Greg, I, I noticed that Ahmad Arbery's mother 
uh, in praising the legislature for passing the bill, said she looked forward to being at the signing of the bill when Governor Kemp does sign it. There's no reason to think he won't. But, but, you know, typically uh, a a big, big deal like this, if you're a governor, you quite often want to do something in a ceremonial way to make a a larger point about this. I wonder how the Kemp folks will, in fact, deal with this. I wonder if they'll sign this quietly, um, knowing that there are still people who aren't in accordance, don't go along with this idea. Or I wonder if they will try to do something that invites an Ahmad Arbery's mind. It's going to be interesting to see how they handle the signing, isn't it? Yeah, or if they sign it in companion with the with the more controversial companion piece, HB 838, uh, which, which, which adds more um, protections for, for, for first responders and police who are targeted by, by crimes, um, which Democrats said was, was, was the, the sort of low point of the day for them, uh, was that it had to, that had to pass in order for hate crimes laws to pass. So if he does that in tandem, I was kind of, once it became clear to me that, that this was going to uh, pass today, and I was emailing you earlier yesterday a little cynically, but, but we still thought, we still <laughs> figured it was going to pass yesterday. Um, once it became clear, I was kind of joking with the governor's staff saying, when's the signing ceremony? They, they have not thought that far ahead, but they did make it very clear that they will sign this after a, curse, after a, a customary legal review. All right. Um, we will watch to see how all of that unfolds. Um, by the way, Andrea Young, director of ACLU, Georgia, was on our show uh, yesterday, and she was very unhappy about 858, uh, which does, in fact, add even more protections for police in their and first responders in their encounters with citizens and feels that they now are like triple protected uh, in, in, and that it was an unnecessary measure. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that Uh, at some point down the road as that bill comes close to signing, too. All right, let's get to our first break. We're running a little late right now. Let's do that. More uh, stories out of the legislature when we come back for more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Karen Owen, uh, political science professor, University of West Georgia. Donna Lowry, uh, host of Lawmakers on GPB TV. Greg Bluestein, political reporter, lead political reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who is my my partner on these Wednesday shows. Uh, uh, Donna, let me start with you on this. Sharon Cooper won a victory, something she sought for a long time. The Senate approved a maternal mortality bill that she has really been passionate about for quite some time now. Um, It's based on the fact that she, as Sharon has pointed out over and over and over again, Georgia has one of the worst maternal mortality rates in the United States. And of course, its impact on black women is is even more significant, yet another example in addition to the coronavirus, of how African-Americans are disproportionately impacted on health-related matters. So it passed yesterday. The problem is it's only symbolic at this moment. 
passed yesterday. It passed with uh, in the uh, the Senate with uh, unanimously, um, and it extends Medicaid to low income mothers from two to six months following the birth of a child, which uh, is is less than what everybody wanted, which was a year. They think that it should be extended to a year because there are all, not only there's so many postpartum problems that these mothers can encounter um, that it has nothing to do with just the birth, the, the initial birth of the child, but they were able to get that and get it through, but there is no money for it, of course, because the budget has been cut. So, uh, so it's, it's almost symbolic in this sense, but, you know, um, Sharon Cooper has been very adamant about pushing this through. So has the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus. They've really been pushing for something to be done when it comes to maternal mortality. The, um, the fact is that Georgia has a maternal mortality rate that is worse than some third world countries. And so the, it's, it's very dismal in terms of black women in particular. They are three to four times more likely to die when they become mothers than white women. And so this has become a big problem. And so to get something passed at all is a big deal. And we had a lot of talk about this um, by a lot of senators, uh, black and white, before the legislative break. But um, certainly this was a, a big lift for Sharon Cooper. And so I think a lot of people would be happy about that. So now money. Now we've got to figure that out. Yeah. Now, now yeah, Karen, they've really got to put something behind this. You know, it strikes me if I wanted. <laughs> Greg talked about being a little cynical a minute ago. I, I wonder if it's fair to be a little skeptical, somewhat cynical right now. Yes, it's a victory for Sharon Cooper. Congratulations to her. There is no money right now. There's a big election coming up in November. The women Republicans are more worried about women voters than they have been in a very long time. This is the kind of measure they certainly hope they can run on to attract women voters back to the fold. Yes? Yes. And indeed, you know, Donna mentioned that it passed unanimously, and that shows that this is really not a partisan issue in the fact that it's really about the health of women and securing that. You know, the partisan part will probably become later with the funding and how it is actually funded. But it is for Republicans an opportunity to run on something in November and talk about how they are addressing some of the health issues. I think, too, this is a key point for voters and people in the state leadership to think about party leadership, particularly who's sitting at the table. So if there are more women sitting at the table in these discussions, then it makes sense to me. I see it as a political scientist where this issue becomes more of a priority, and therefore in the next legislative session, it becomes part of the funding discussion much more than other maybe priorities. So I think we have to think about that, like when voters are sitting at the, the, the ballot, you know, filling it out at home, if they're doing mail-in or if they're actually able to get to the polls, then what will they be deciding and part of that choosing of a, you know, a member of the General Assembly is the priorities they're going to push. And I think that this is one that we'll have to see if it's going to be, you know, as top of an issue for a lot of voters like education is. Greg? Yeah, and remember, next year is going to be an entirely different landscape at the state capitol. Um, even if Democrats don't don't take control of the, of the Georgia House and flip 16 seats like they're aiming to, um, it, I think both parties uh, acknowledge that at least there'd be a tighter margins for Republicans um, no matter what. And, and so different things could push to the forefront. Uh, last year, we were all talking about the anti-abortion um, 
heartbeat bill, right? The the, the bill that, that generated so much controversy and 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 vows from suburban um, women who used to maybe be Republican who are now thinking thinking otherwise um, that they would they would take revenge at the polls. And now the talk is about um, you know this sort of Medicaid extension waiver plan and hate crimes. So things change in a year. I'm not saying people will forget what happened. You know, people who are upset about the anti-abortion bill will forget about it, but. Um, next year could bring a whole new set of priorities, just like the pandemic kind of shaked shake up this year. Um, let's talk about another issue. Uh, gambling has suddenly, Greg, shown its face again in these last few days of the session. Uh, Ron Stevens, the uh, chair of, of the Economic Development and Tourism uh, Commission, uh, a committee, has uh, is pushing it to bolster the state's economy he wants uh, the legislature to uh, a vote for a referendum that will allow the people of Georgia to decide whether we should have gambling. Uh, it, it, in these final few days, Greg, is he really going to be able to get anywhere with this? Oof. I mean, anything can happen these final few days. And so you don't say, you know, you never say never. Um, but they, they, you talk about a perennial issue, just like hate crimes, uh, but one without sort of a, you know, a groundswell of, of support behind. Um, gambling is, 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 is a step too far for so many conservative Republicans. Um, although, you know, there have been statewide polls and even a statewide primary vote, um, a non-binding primary question that showed a majority of Republicans do back uh, casino gambling to fund education. There's still so... It's still such a hard hill to climb right now, um, and you also don't have the outward support of of Governor Kemp, um, who said he won't veto legislation, but he also won't uh, specifically back it. So um, that one kind of needs a vocal, vocal champion, too, to give Republicans who might be on the fence um, some cover, and you're, you don't have that quite yet. So. So, Donna, here's what's interesting to me about this. I mean, that what, it, what this measure would do is to allow voters, I, I think I'm right in saying, uh, just to pass a, uh, a, a ballot referendum that says, yeah, we're open to having forms of gambling in Georgia. That could be sports betting. It could be paramutual wagering. It could be casinos. What's interesting about this, Donna, is that early in the spring or late winter, there were really strong advocates pushing hard to allow sports betting as a reasonable way to get Georgia into the legal gambling business. And we know that the four major professional sports teams in Georgia came together and uh, to, to lobby in favor of sports betting. Well, here we are it, toward the end of June. There's no sports to bet on anymore, <laughs> Donna. It seems yeah. that measure's not getting very far right now. Yeah, I think right now those uh, those four, <laughs> the heads of those four sports organizations are so focused on whether or not they're going to get seasons back up and running that they're, they're not yeah. as concerned about that. Although, you know, it is a revenue stream. They did push for that, but the... Um, it just doesn't seem like there is a, a stomach for it down here at the Capitol and for people who are um, just adamantly against it and don't see it being the big revenue stream that, that some some might think it might be. Um, so I, I don't see it going anywhere. But, I, I, you know, there was just momentum going and then the coronavirus pandemic uh, shutdown hit and things have really changed when it comes to that. So I think I think, as Greg said, it will be uh, it's a steep hill for a lot of people here for them to get this to go through. But they will try. They will try. 
Well, I mean, the argument that the state needs revenue right now uh, is a fairly a significant one. But but they're, if they're not going to go there, I'm fascinated by the fact, Karen, that there's also, despite the fact that it's on the table, uh, the notion of raising the tobacco tax in Georgia. We have one of the lowest tobacco taxes in the state. Uh, advocates for raising the tax say you could you, you could come up with five hundred million dollars or more in additional revenue if you raise the tobacco tax. The Speaker of the House is adamantly against it because it's, I I think it's safe to say, it's just another example of Republicans opposed tax increases, period. Yeah? Yes, I think that's probably correct, right? Like going into an election year right now, you don't want to be the ones that have passed a tax increase. Whatever that tax increase is, you need to be able to run that you have kept taxes low for the citizens. You know, interesting about the casino, and I think – you know, Greg mentioned that Governor Kemp hasn't been, you know, out forefront either supporting it or, you know, talking about it. And it's different than when we passed the Georgia lottery. So when Governor Miller was at the forefront pushing for it, and it was very clear where that money was going. He had three things he pushed for, right? Pre-K, college, and technology. And with this, it doesn't seem like this, the political will is behind being very specific where that money's going. They talk about education, but you can read, of course, in the AJC about how one of the buckets is the state general fund. And I'm not sure voters are going to say, hey, we want all this to just go into the general fund, right? Like, you get conservative voters behind things when you put it very much earmarked to education. I also wanted to make the point that it's interesting, if it does pass, whether there will be a very good religious organized attempt to get that constitutional amendment measure on the ballot to fail when you don't have a lot of people right now in church. And going back to the lottery, you know, opposition Uh. came because people were hearing from the pulpit or they were actually getting brochures on their cars at the time to oppose it. And I'm curious if it does get through, if we'll actually see that happen again or, or how the religious community will react. I, Greg, that was a great little history lesson. <laughs> Zell Miller in 1990 ran on the issue of passing a state lottery. And as Karen points out, he did it in a very smart way. He earmarked in specific language that it would go to pay for pre-K for the Hope Scholarship, which, of course, emerged as the most important aspect of it uh, over the years. Zell might not really appreciate that necessarily, and technology. And he learned a lesson, Greg, because uh, uh, Karen also talked about general fund now for some of the money that would be collected now. He learned a lesson of Florida where Florida, when they established their lottery for education, the money did go into their general fund. And what, they, what, what Florida, Floridians learned was that because it was in the general fund, lawmakers started reducing the amount of money they put into education as they did their budgets every year. That was a long way of saying you better be very clever about how you approach an issue like uh, gambling revenue in the state. Clever and tight with your language, and it needs and, and it seems like, at least in, in Zell Miller's case, that it took a tremendous amount of political capital to get that passed. Things have obviously changed since then, um, but there's a lot of I think legislative confusion over these laws too, because we've seen uh, these proposals. We've seen so many different types of, of gambling proposals in the last, let's say, six eight years. We've seen 
um, promises from MGM to build $2 billion casinos in downtown Atlanta. Uh, we've seen, um, you know, we've, we've heard them being called destination resorts and, and plans to build in Savannah or maybe near the airport. Or No one's if you, if you ask the average rank and file lawmaker what, what the stance is, what, what, the, what, what this year's approach is, um, I think there's a lot of confusion because the bill keeps on changing. And of course, it, it needs to change in order to pass. Um, but but there's some murky road ahead. Um, and I think I think that needs to be one of the casino advocates main missions is to is to you know have a clear defining purpose and and, and a clear message about where this money would go to. Our friend Brian Robinson, a frequent panelist on the show, contacted me yesterday. You know, he's been working with the Fox Theater, uh, lobbying uh, uh, on this because there are coalition. There's a coalition of arts organizations like the Fox, like the Woodruff Arts Center, like other performing arts groups that are very nervous that if you allow casinos uh, into Georgia with their big emphasis on shows, on on big show, uh, uh, floor shows, that uh, it will have a devastating impact on the arts community. The only problem there, Donna, is I, Brian Robinson's a good lobbyist, but you know, le- legislators are not necessarily all that clued into how important it is to save the arts. <laughs> I, I, unfortunately, I think you're right about that, that uh, I, I get their point and it, and it probably would hurt them tremendously, but I think their their focus is um, more on some, some other issues. Uh, it's interesting, right before the, um, for the break, um, on Sine Die, I'm sorry, on Crossover Day, we're going to get to Sine Day on, Sine Die on Friday, on Crossover Day, uh, the former mayor, um, the former governor of Mississippi, Haley Barber, was there at the Capitol, um, really working at uh, the crowd, trying to get them to uh, past casinos and to to look at this bill, um, but then you know as we said that we had that break, so I don't think it went anywhere. So I, I really think it's going to be a heavy lift for them to try to get something through this time. But um, I, I guess the feeling is do a little bit now, and we'll see where we can be um, in 2021. And as we've learned in the last few months, anything can happen in the next few <laughs> months in just a few short periods. All of time. right. That- Donna Lowry, you got the last word of this segment. We still got a few more issues I really want to get to on this edition of Political Rewind. We'll do that after this break. Greg Bluestein, after the meltdown that took place in many polling places on primary day here in Georgia a couple of weeks back, uh, the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, called for an inquiry. He wanted to uh, put together hearings to see where things went wrong. We saw uh, finger pointing back and forth. Secretary of State's office on this show said, hey, we did everything right. Not our problem. Fulton County, DeKalb County, you're the, to blame for all this. Uh, yesterday, Raffensperger was called to testify, and uh, he kind of repeated the same message. Uh, he said the state's voting system worked well. The problems were mostly issues in the counties. Uh, I, a lot of legislators did not respond particularly well to mes- to Raffensperger's message. No, he got grilled, um, and he, he acknowledged <laughs> that, that what happened was unacceptable. But again, he 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 laid most of the blame on Fulton County and its and its long known <laughs> problems. Um, he also said that elections officials need to add voting locations improve training, and, and he laid out some plans to, to have more technical support on hand 
Um, but he continued to insist that, that really the problem wasn't with the voting equipment. He said just 14 pieces of voting equipment had to be replaced for mechanical issues. But that figure did not account for the troubles poll workers face with inserting uh, encoding cards and check-in table polling issues and hooking up elect uh, electronic equipment properly and, and also all the voting machines that were taken out of service because um, they, they, you know, the, the folks, including people I, I interviewed on that day, um, just didn't have the technical support to get it done. Karen, um, the reason this matters, not as looking back, but looking forward, is if the Secretary of State's office uh, as as the overseer of the elections, sure, Fulton County, DeKalb County, other counties that had significant problems have got to do their own soul searching and come up with solutions. But if the Secretary of State's office doesn't take this incredibly seriously, as um, as uh, uh, Representative uh, Shannon from Decatur said to him yesterday, it's not going to work. It's not going to be good enough for you to just keep saying it's Fulton County and not my issue. And then she said to Ravensburger, what specific policies are you going to put in place? And until we start hearing about things more than the generalities, oh, we need more training, we need more of this or that, there's no reason to feel confident about what happens in the August runoff election and then in November. Yes, I think there's great concerns about what will happen just in a few short weeks in these runoff elections and then what can happen in November. I would imagine... And obviously, I'm not at the Capitol. <laughs> I'm locked in at home. But I would imagine that the Secretary of State is having a conversation with his staff about how are we reaching out to the counties? What are we going to be talking to the counties about? Because he probably felt like, as we mentioned, he got grilled yesterday. He has to have some answers. He will be running potentially for reelection in a few years. And this is going to be an issue that can always be brought back up if you don't handle the administration of elections well. And so I think he's probably working with his staff to talk about how they're getting involved with the counties. I think one thing that we as voters need to consider, too, is the election happened in June amongst so many different circumstances that we had new voting machines that we were trying to learn on. We had the social distance going into the polls. Poll workers who are normally there, trained well, weren't there. And so I'm not trying to give a pass to any county or any person, but I think we also have to understand that that is a unique time when we were voting with a lot of new changes and uncertainty. And hopefully now it's pressed upon our leaders that before August and November, they're really working out those kinks. Yeah, Donna, that's precisely the point. We are quite likely going to be in a very similar place in October, in August. What is it, the 24th, I think, is the runoff date, something like that. Uh, and then in, and maybe in November as well. Uh, so, fine, there were, you know, these problems, this crisis that hit us for, for the June primary was bad enough. But if we, we've got to figure out how to have decent elections, even if we're still facing the same problems, in the runoff and then in the general. No, absolutely. So we're going to still be dealing with uh, COVID-19. Uh, you're still going to have the people who are more, um, the, the vulnerable population of, uh, of older people who are usually poll workers are going to um, be reticent about going to the to be uh, poll workers. So they've got to come up with more, you know, for, for more people. And remember, leading into all of this, Raffensperger kept saying, we had training, people have been doing things, we're so ready, and um, things failed. So he's got he's to figure that all out. Right. And it wasn't just Fulton County that was a problem. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Greg, we've only got a couple of minutes left. I'm going to start with you on this. Uh, so the coronavirus numbers, uh, we're, uh, very unfortunately, are starting to tick up in Georgia. Spike is a word that I'm a little cautious about using because it may suggest a bigger increase than we're having right now. But there's no doubt that the numbers are increasing, and they have been increasing since the Memorial Day weekend, and we don't know what's going to happen uh, moving forward. It's interesting, Greg, that uh, Van Johnson, the mayor of Savannah, uh, has now said that as Chatham County cases increase and as he anticipates tourists coming down to the Savannah area and the seacoast, he wants to make masks mandatory. Uh, it, it's interesting, once again, where we have a mayor who seems to want to take the lead on uh, protecting his citizens. Yeah, and that's not something that Governor Kemp has ever included in his statewide executive order, so it's not clear if, if, if that supersedes anything that Van Johnson in Savannah would like to do. Um, certainly, Kemp has, has been wearing a mask in public himself, so he, he's kind of contrasting himself with President Trump and others who have not done that. But um, it, there's, there's, a, there's been an increase, a market increase in rural areas as well that is very concerning to state officials and public health experts. Um, and, and just recently, emergency beds that were once housed at uh, Georgia World Congress Center have now been shifted to middle Georgia uh, to cope with what could be an increase in hospital donations there. So officials are, are, are very warily watching these increases, and I think we're going we're gonna to start seeing some effects of that. I was staggered last night um, watching the rally in Phoenix uh, where President Trump appeared, where you had thousands, a couple thousand people probably in that megachurch. Nobody was wearing a mask. I mean, virtually no one was masked. People were interacting very close distances to one another as they mingled. They sat next to each other. They cheered. They carried on. And I have to say... This has now become personal for me because I now have family members who are part of the spike in the hottest state in the country right now who have COVID-19. And Donna, I do give the governor credit. Governor Kemp has modeled wearing a mask. And I have to say, thank you, Governor Kemp. Yeah, he certainly has. And he's he is um, he's doing it. But there are a lot of people down here who aren't wearing them. The Senate isn't required to wear them. So I can't imagine um, Van Johnson being able to get um, anybody else to do it. If you can't get some of the lawmakers to do it down here. But, yes, he has done a great job modeling his mask. Karen, you want to get one last word in on that? Well, I was just going to say it is tough to get people to follow any type of rule, right, when it involves the space covering. But I think what we're seeing a lot across the state and the country is people are letting their guards down. They're trying to get back to normal. They want their lives back. And it's really hard to want to think about it. I mean, it's difficult to know that this is where we are, but we need to be paying attention to the numbers and what's happening with the virus. So absolutely. Okay, so here's my soapbox moment. When I hear someone say, oh, well, I'm not wearing a mask because, oh, I'll either get the virus or not get the virus, and I'll deal with it. What I really hear them saying is, I'm not going to wear a mask, and, and if I get the virus, I'm going to end up giving it to you. That's what they're really <laughs> saying. So that's me on the soapbox for just a moment. All right, we are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Donna Lowry, it was really a pleasure to have you. Good luck these last couple 
days of the session. You too, Bluestein. We'll look forward to seeing your reports, Donna's reports, at 7 o'clock at night on GPB-TV. Karen Owen, always great to have you with us. Um, my thanks to our, our team, Tom Faust, Jake Trower, Jesse uh, uh, Nicewanger, Sam Burmistaws for everything you're doing to keep the show up and running. We're out of here. Back tomorrow. Take care. Stay healthy.